0: You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast.
1: Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Hi, listeners. Welcome back for episode 29 of the Common Sense Podcast. woohoo! Yeah. So here today we have a, a exciting topic. Uh, I, I'm really looking forward to this one because as David mentioned when we were deciding on what topics we're going to do next, I, I have unwittingly, and I think it's just due to working at the aquarium, have become the aquatic guy. Yes. <laughs> Which I'm OK with because that's cool stuff. So today's episode is actually a requested topic by one of our listeners on Twitter, Madhu, asked us to... Who's Mad? Uh, (laughs) Mad (laughs) Madhu. Asked us to do an episode on specifically Dunkleosteus, the giant armored fish, but we decided to expand it into a Placoderms episode featuring prominently
0: (laughs) Dunkleosteus. Yeah, so instead of doing an episode about one crazy armored fish. We're going to do an episode about all the crazy armored fish. Absolutely. So the,
1: these are the, those those classic and very popular and, and we'll get into it when we talk about it, but they, they show up in uh, video games and all over the place because they're crazy. These were the ancient armored fish uh, that were actually extremely important to our own group's evolutionary history.
0: Yeah. yeah. If you've ever seen listeners... If you don't know Dunkelosteus off the top of your head, if you've ever seen the fossil image of the fish whose face looks like a can opener, <laughs> like a can opener, yeah, 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 yeah. with the big spiky mm-hmm. fangs in the front, you always it several pieces of plating, yeah. and it's big. It was great yeah. white shark big. Mm-hmm. And so we will be discussing them,
1: but as is our tradition, or as is our typical plan. We yes. have news to go over first. So every episode we always hit on the some recent news articles to discuss and keep us
0: all up to date with The Times. Yes, indeed we do. And in fact, uh, the two news articles that I have brought today are both kind of follow-up news articles, which is pretty fun. Neat. sequence. We've been doing this long enough that our news is now (laughs) adding on to itself. Our old news is making new news. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So my first news is strongly related to episode five of the Common Descent podcast, which was about the end Cretaceous mass extinction, Mm -hmm. the extinction event that ended the age of the dinosaurs. If you want to hear a whole lot about that and what possibly caused it, go check out episode five if you have not already. But the short version, of course, is that there was a big ol' asteroid impact, and there was a whole lot of volcanic activity over in India, and people have tried for a very long time to figure out, you know, how much did both of those Mm -hmm. contribute to the extinction event and we mentioned very briefly uh, toward the end of that episode that some people have suggested that there may have been a link between the asteroid impact and the volcanic activity yeah that that it's and you you'll you'll hear this a lot when people like cartoonish uh, imaginings of this extinction mm-hmm. you'll often see people sort of Uh, uh, easily mentioned, oh, the asteroid hit and it set off volcanoes around the world, which isn't really substantiated. But this new piece of news does substantiate it (laughs) a little. (laughs) So it is known. The the, the big question going into this, this is a a bit of research by Joseph Burns and Leif Karlstrom in Science Advances, and their question going in was, did this impact have an effect on volcanic activity around the world. And we know today that earthquakes, right, seismic activity can affect other processes. Yeah. Earthquakes can set off geysers. Earthquakes can can change the flow of streams. It is rare, but it does happen that earthquakes can be related to volcanic eruptions. Mm-hmm. That, that it can reshuffle something in the, in the volcanic tubes yeah,
1: change and change the, the
0: eruption pattern. These are rare, and I, I don't think that they're very well understood. But there is evidence that people have pointed out that while the famous Deccan trap volcanism that was going on in India at the very end of the Cretaceous starts and ends way before and way after the asteroid impact... Mm-hmm. And so for a while, people said, well, yeah, but it wasn't started by the asteroid impact, obviously, because it starts many, many thousands of years beforehand. But there is a major increase in volcanic activity in the Deccan Traps at around the same time the asteroid hits. So some people have suggested, okay, maybe there's a link there. Mm -hmm. What this group of researchers found is evidence of volcanic activity at the time from the ocean floor. Oh. So the ocean floor is full of volcanoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, mid-ocean ridges are places where new crust is formed, and the yeah. way that, that happens is lava's coming up from the, the thin parts of, of the oceanic crust, and it rises and it cools, and then as the ocean floor spreads outward, the new crust is carried off to both sides. hmm So that the youngest crust of the ocean is in the very center, and then it gets older and older as you move off in either direction. Yeah. They scanned the seafloors across the oceans of the world, looking for anomalies. Looking for evidence, through gravity readings, of, essentially, thicker oceanic rock. Oh. The logic being that if you found right, thicker or thinner rock will tell you if you've got more or less new crust being formed yeah. by more or less volcanic activity yeah. down at those mid-ocean ridges. And what they found is there are a handful, uh, maybe more than a handful, there's, a, there's an abundance of thick crust anomalies, right? unusually thick crust areas centered around 66 million years old in the Pacific and the Indian Oceans. That's cool. Which suggests that there was an extra amount of erupting volcanism Mm -hmm. at these mid-ocean ridges at roughly the time, and it's hard to date precisely, you know, you can't date to the day, so it's roughly the same time as the asteroid impact is dated to. Mm Mm-hmm. And they explored some other possibilities, because, you know, it could be, they said, mantle plume activity can sh- change and cause this. You could have changes to plate motion for, for a number of reasons. Changes in sea level can affect how much volcanic activity you have, mm-hmm. because it changes the amount of pressure. Yeah, which is really interesting. On the, the area, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're taking the lid off. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's pressure release mm-hmm. melt you can get. That's a very quick and dirty... Explanation for something that is much more complicated.
1: It's like putting too much air in a balloon.
0: Uh- <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but they suggest that with the available evidence, those other explanations don't quite fit as well as the possibility of seismic activity inducing this extra volcanism. And the fact that the Deccan traps also show a big burst mm-hmm. at that time they suggest lends some support to this idea that there may have actually been a connection between the asteroid impact and worldwide volcanic activity.
1: That's really cool. Yeah. I I like it for a couple reasons. One, it's neat that there's support for that, or, or, or some potential support for it, because just on a, on a surface, that's a, a cool concept. Oh, like, yeah. We want that to be true. Yes, that's cool. <laughs> But also, that's a cool way to find it. That is, it's. Yeah. I love those moments, especially in geological history survey. Is that you have to look for the evidence of something, like not just the direct evidence, but like secondary and tertiary evidence. Mm-hmm. We looking for thick rock. Why? Because lots of lava would make more
0: rock. Oh,
1: oh okay, yeah, that makes <laughs> sense.
0: <laughs> that's really neat. It is now, as is always the case. There. There's more study that's going to come. Mm-hmm. It's possible that they're reading it wrong. It's possible that there, there's other explanations, right? There's there's always a number of points along this line of reasoning that we could be making a misstep. Absolutely. And that's why, at in episode five, I added it as a, like a little footnote, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I don't, because it's such a catchy idea. Yes, exactly. It's the kind of thing, if you mention it, people remember it, mm-hmm. and then they want it to be true, and so it sticks, and so I want to make sure we're, we're adding caveats. But one thing that I should mention that I wrote down here, if this is correct, and if they're reading this correct, their estimate, so if you remember from episode five, we talked about the Deccan Traps are an example of large igneous province volcanism, mm-hmm. which is periods and places of just unholy amounts of volcanic eruption. Yeah. Their estimate is that along these mid-ocean ridges at this time, there was a roughly equivalent amount Whew. being erupted in comparison to things like the Deccan Traps. Man, and the, the implications
1: of what that would have on the the oceans themselves is also
0: yeah huge. So, they're, once again... To, no, to the surprise of nobody, there might be more to this story. Yeah, Bad time. It was a bad time. It was a bad day. It was yeah. a bad day. I don't want to go there. Very,
1: no good, rotten, bad day. Tyrannosaurus Rex and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. So, on a much less devastating news note, I have a news source about a little lizard who like to go for a run or the little lizard that could the little lizard that could the lizard that could specifically run. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Uh, This is a, this is a news report. The research is published in scientific reports by Lee et al. And it's a pretty straightforward uh, find, but the story behind it and the implications are really interesting. This is about a trackway just over a hundred million years old, about 110 in, found in South Korea, August 2004, and we'll get into why it's from so far back. But it is a slab of uh, mud, once mud, that preserved footprints of a lizard that show the lizard running on its back feet. Cool. Yeah, it's so it's this little trackway, and there's 29 footprints in total of the lizard. 25 of them are back feet. And oh. it's showing... And the, this is not a, a crazy thing. Like, lizards today do this all the time. There's more than 50 species a day that can run on their back legs.
0: Right, right. So this
1: this is a fairly... Lots of little lizards use this as a way to get away from stuff. The famous one, the basilisk or Jesus Christ lizard, mm-hmm. is the one that can actually do it over water for short distances because of their big feet and their fast steps. Yep. So this is not a crazy concept, but... We didn't know they could do it this far back, Yeah, which is, and this is, we've mentioned footprints before are really cool because they can show behavior and there's no real way to confirm that lizards were running on their back legs without seeing something like this beforehand. They had to just look at the lengths of legs and anatomy things that are evidence that maybe it could, but not that it did.
0: Yeah. That's a big, that's a big Mm -hmm. distinction. The difference of what something could do Mm -hmm. versus what it actually did do. This is a really cool find for that reason.
1: Now, as we mentioned, footprints get their own species name since we can't definitely put it to a d- fossil lizard for sure. Yes, an uh, Ichno species. Ichno species, a cool name for yes. the, the species type. Uh, this is Seripes Hadongensis. Oh, that's a that's a pretty cool name. Yeah, and it's uh, the lizard foot of Hadong, which is the county... In South Korea, it was found in. Ooh. Yeah. The, there's a couple of neat things here. The, it's a small lizard that said that it was about two and a half centimeters between steps, so it's not taking, you know, it's, this little yeah. little lizard. The disparity between the numbers of footprints total and the back feet is suggesting that it started on all fours. They have a few of the front feet, and then as it built up speed, transitioned to the back legs, which is what they do today.
0: Yeah, you'll see, like, um the, the, the frilled lizards yeah. in Australia are very famous for this. Mm-hmm. They'll go, like, one, two, and then bop, 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 bop,
1: onto the back legs. Yes. So, very normal. And as we mentioned, this is typically a tool for getting away from danger. Like almost every lizard you see that uses this. Right. Uses it when they're stressed. Now, some, like, the frilled lizard, I've seen plenty of videos of them just doing it around a room, because they're good at it, so they just, yeah. You know, <laughs> They're being taken care of at a, you know, someplace and they're just running around the enclosure. So there's some of them are just can you, but most times it's a fear response and this might actually be corroborated by the other tracks that were found on this mud slab. And these tracks are why it took them over a decade to research the lizard footprints. When it was initially found, the tracks that got their attention were the pterosaur tracks
0: ah, in the
1: mud. So they a didn't even... little flying reptile. Absolutely. So they they were... And as we mentioned in a last episode, one of your news sources had...
0: Yep. Pterosaur tracks.
1: Pterosaur tracks are not something you come across very often. No. <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't even notice the little lizard tracks. I mean, they they said they just assumed that they were just neat little tracks, but not
0: anything groundbreaking <laughs> Yeah, they were focused on these obviously rare tracks and so these lizard tracks sitting next to the eye-catching parasaur mm-hmm. tracks or the prehistoric footprint equivalent of every movie that opened this past weekend not named Black Panther
1: yes there you go see <laughs> reconnecting <laughs> absolutely and it's it's one of those things where literally it sat in the collections for a decade before wow. someone finally went back and noticed it, and immediately had that, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is yeah. this is a big <laughs> deal. Uh, the little ter- it's a small little pterosaur, um, you know, not not very big, and it's pterocnese coriainensis, Korean- and this was small animal, small pterosaur. If you ever heard of um, dimorphodon, they they reconstructed yes. it with a very similar, very reptilian little head, full of little teeth, not a beak. The same way as you typically yeah, picture yeah, them. Yeah. And they were saying that they were, they were very likely predators and could absolutely be going after small animals on the ground, potentially, and may have been. They can't confirm that the footprints happened at the same time, but right. something like this might have been why the little lizard was running. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> it's a cool,
0: if it's true, it's a very cool story told in the footprints. Yes. But even if not, it's cool footprints. It's really neat to find footprints of bipedal activity yeah. in lizards because what it makes me think of is, you know, this isn't likely the case here. Lizards, like you mentioned, have there there aren't lizards that are typically bipedal. There are lizards that can do it. It's a it's a trick they yeah. can use to, to to get away from stuff.
1: Realizing that as a kid made me very sad for modern reptiles because I realized that was something that was lacking in the modern taxa. You don't yeah. see that.
0: But the evolution of bipedality is a really interesting topic, because mm-hmm. you've got archosaurs did it yeah. at least twice. Dinosaurs are bipedal, and then there were a number of crocodilomorphs that were bipedal. Mm-hmm. So, And then pterosaurs are bipedal, too. So, you know, a number of times, archosaurs and archosauriforms evolved bipedality. So mm-hmm. seeing it this early in lizards is really interesting, because obviously this is way later than the origins of those groups, but it's easy to see how bipedality could have been widespread, even if it wasn't common. Mm-hmm. Even if it mm-hmm. wasn't the, the habit of a lot of creatures. So yeah,
1: neat little running lizard.
0: So my second bit of news takes us back to the Grey Fossil Site, Ooh. our favorite place. So we did a whole episode about the Grey Fossil Site back episode 14. And we reported from the prep lab at the Gray Fossil Site in episode 13 with our friend and site preparator, Sean. This bit of news comes from the Gray Fossil Site in the form of a new species of turtle. Cool. Which is very exciting because anytime there's a new thing that comes out of the Gray Fossil Site, it's always weird and strange because it's a weird, strange site. Yeah. This new turtle. ...was published by my buddy Steve... Hey, I know him. ...Jazinski <laughs> in the journal Pier j Steve is the person with whom I published the new species of snake that came out of the Gray Foxes mm-hmm, site, mm-hmm. which I mentioned in another earlier episode of this podcast during the news. This is a turtle in the genus Trachemes, so red-eared sliders... Yeah. ...are the most famous Trachemes species today because they are you, they're in the southeast of the U.S., mm-hmm. and you'll see them. They have the red splotch on the ears, yep. and they've typically got green stripes down the sides of their faces. But they're really famous for having also now established populations everywhere.
1: Yeah, other
0: places we can make invasive species too. Yeah, <laughs> the northeast U.S., the western U.S., Europe, Australia, <laughs> China. They're everywhere. It's, yep. They are semi-aquatic turtles. The Gray Fossil Site was a pond ecosystem, and so it doesn't, you know, not surprising that they're there. This turtle is by far the most common vertebrate fossil at the site. There are oh yeah, tons of turtle fossils there. This one, honestly, what makes it unique are a lot of esoteric characters of the bones and features in the shell and things like that, which are not particularly interesting to talk to talk about in the podcast yeah. episode, a lot of esoteric features. It's it's just different
1: enough to yes. not be the same as
0: what we recognize. But what's interesting about it is that it is not only a new species, it is one of the best known turtle species in the world. There are a good few dozen specimens mm-hmm. of this turtle and between them, and I talked to Steve about it, and Steve said his guess is that this is probably all together that we now know this species from 98 to 99% of its skeleton. Wow. And that's shell and neck and head and limbs. Wow. We have an extremely good idea of it which according to him and this is a turtle of the group the family Emydidae, which includes a lot of semi-aquatic turtles. That makes this turtle possibly the best osteologically known, so that in terms of mm-hmm. how much the skeleton has been studied, the best known imited turtle, living or extinct. <laughs> oh, wow. Jeez. <laughs> which is which is a pretty high praise. <laughs> wow. Brand new species like so many things at the gray site, because there's just no other sites like it. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of endemic taxa, a lot of endemic species here. And the best part about this new species is that it is in the genus Trachemes, and its species name is Hogroodai. Yeah. And if that sounds familiar, it is because episode 13, we interviewed Sean Hogrud, preparator at the Gray Fossil site, and our friend, who now has an extinct turtle named after.
1: Yeah!
0: It's Congrats, awesome. Congrats, Sean. Our, our friend is a turtle now, and it's... Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny actually because I knew Sean was getting a turtle named after him back in like two thousand and twelve. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. this was Steve's thesis project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he told me that he wanted to start naming stuff after uh certain people for various things, but Sean was one of his like, I'm gonna name something after Sean. hmm And we ended up naming the snake after Blaine. But yeah, he said, I'm going to name the turtle after Sean, because Sean does a ton of work here on prepping all the fossils. I don't know how long Sean has known, (laughs) but I've known for like five years (laughs) that he was eventually going to have something named after him. And I I love that that emphasis as
1: well, because that was something I would tell people at the museum all the time, where it's the whole thing of when you hear about a new species that was probably found five years ago. Yes. And it's just you are now hearing about it because it's been dug up, cleaned off, put back together, studied, studied enough and then yes. peer reviewed and then published and now you can hear about it in the news. <laughs> and so it's like that's a perfect, you know, real world example of
0: exactly that. I mean in the it's it happens all the time. The other interesting thing that came out of this study was the phylogeny, so the relationships between the turtles. Real quick note, because there was a neat figure in the paper, which we'll link in the blog post as always, Steve ran an analysis to basically figure out the relationships between Trachemese species, and there are several today, and there are several in the fossil record, and he found that roughly the southern Trachemese species seem to be related,
1: mm-hmm. and the
0: northern Trachomese species seem to be related among the living ones, but the best-known fossil taxa are in a third group. Ooh, weird. Not directly within the two living groups, which means that there is this, apparently seems to mean that there was a radiation of trachomies, of these particular slider turtles, if you will, and one big radiation of them is now extinct. And what we're left with are the other two major groups, but why that... Yeah. Third group went extinct. We do not know. Turtle history is weird. Uh, t- talking to Steve about turtles is a is a deep delve it's into just it's a big mess. How deep turtle. into the gopher tortoise hole do you want to go? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So congratulations to Steve on the publication. Congratulations to Sean on his brand new turtle. Yeah, it's it's cool stuff all around. Now, my next news article
1: does not connect back to other episodes, but it actually kind of connects back with my first news article, because whilst that dealt with a running lizard, this one deals with a walking fish. What? Yeah. That's just silly. It's it's ridiculously awesome, is what it is. <laughs> so, skates are cousins of rays and your other flattened cousins of the sharks, the, the sawfish and those. Skates yeah. are... Very similar to stingrays, they still have the flattened body with the two quote unquote wings, the the really prominent pectoral fins, their front fins that they use like wings, they flat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, typically they're bottom dwelling, but not all of them are. Some of them can get fairly big, but there's also some that are very small and they they look very much like your uh like a stealth bomber. They got a pointed nose and then much wider wings than most stingrays have. And their little long whip-like tail, they lack the stinger of a stingray, but they often have uh, spines, like little hard dermal spikes. Yeah. These are interesting for another reason, and this has been seen before, but this research was the first one to find out something really interesting about this behavior. Their back fins, their pelvic fins, have elongated tips that they can use like little feet and You may have seen, there's YouTube videos, tons of them of little baby skates going up the side of glass and just doodling their little back (laughs) and it's adorable. Uh, But they use those to actually walk along the seafloor. They'll push themselves along instead of swimming the whole way. Now, this was noticed by some researchers, and the publication is in Cell by Jung et al., and they had been looking into the origins of tetrapod movement of walking and he looked at he looked at snakes to see their muscular movement and was trying to look at where did our muscle muscular ability come that allowed us to start walking you know our ancestors right right typically it was a thought that as the early tetrapods the fish that first came onto land began to transition to land is when they began to transition to walking. That you know the nervous system started to emphasize those walking muscles, and it began to develop. You know they de- began to develop over time and start being able to make a walking motion. Right. Part of the reason for this thought was that, or the, or the, you know the the issue between transitioning from a fish to a walking animal is that fish mainly move by wiggling their spine back and forth by going a lateral movement. And pushing themselves forward, while a walking tetrapod uses its limbs to move and mostly holds the spine still.
0: Yes, and that's different musculature you're Completely using. Completely different, different movements of the skeleton. Yeah.
1: Fish uses the muscles along its body to basically pull itself like a big long cable back and yes. forth, while we are using and pectoral it? and, and uh, our our pelvic muscles and a whole bunch of other things to walk. Now you get you know, wiggling with lizards and stuff, but they're still mostly just using those limbs and the different muscle sets. But skates swim without moving the spine because you're using their wings. And even when they're fully swimming, they're flapping. So they're using their pectoral fins. They're not wiggling their body back and forth. And they do have that walking motion of the uh, fins. So after getting some skate eggs, because luckily they develop in eggs and mm-hmm. not live birth like their cousin, the stingrays. So it made it, not to say it was impossible, but this definitely was a cool thing they were able to do. They looked at the development of skate babies and their movement inside the egg. Because yeah. baby fish will swim around their egg pretty actively sometimes. Like tadpoles do it as well. Yeah, And when they first start moving, they undulate their body like a fish. They, they're wiggling their whole body around the egg. And they're showing that typical fish movement. As they start to develop more, They starts to just see the tail do that movement. Just the tail is wiggling. So like an alligator. They're not moving the torso, but they're wiggling that tail. And then they start flapping their fins mm-hmm. while in the egg. And then when they come out is when they start showing the hind foot back and forth walking. So it's still got that back and forth motion of the swimming, but it's just on those fins. Interesting. So they, they actually develop into the skate form of movement, which is cool. They show yeah. fish movement, but then they grow out of it, basically. And taking a closer look, he looked at the neurons that control these movements and found, this is where it gets really interesting, it's using the exact same pathways that tetrapods do. yeah, That four-limbed animals do, which means that whilst we originally thought that these neuron pathways formed as we transition to land, we find that they were actually already there because skates are a very ancient group going back mm-hmm. over 400 million years. So this pathway, these, these neuron
0: pathways have already existed before things were even thinking about walking on land. Yeah. And this, this is something that a pattern that you see over and over again mm-hmm. in, in major evolutionary transitions, is that it's tempting to think that a new thing happened, we evolved something completely different. Yep. But more and more we find things that are just co-opted from earlier stuff. It's like, you know, you might think that flight, you'd have to come up with something completely Mm -hmm. different in order to fly, but no, birds just use the arms. Yep. They already had arms, they just changed them slightly. Yep. This is why you don't see dragons, they don't sprout wings.
1: Yes. They turn something else into a wing. And that's evolution reuses what is already there. They upcycle. Yes. <laughs> and the the extra even more cool bit is that as they took a closer look, he decided to look at the genes that were controlling these neuron pathways in the, fin, the pectoral and pelvic fins of the skate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Same exact genes that control the development of the neuron pathways
0: in us tetrapods. That's really cool. Yeah. So the genetic mm-hmm. infrastructure was already there, being used in a in a decidedly fishy manner, mm-hmm. and te- and and we are not like the tetrapods, the, the the land-dwelling vertebrates are not the only group of fish that y- took this set of genes and set of neural pathways to use for walking.
1: Yeah, and so it was basically it was a trait that was already present, that was very easily co-opted into this new behavior. That's super cool. Yeah.
0: Very neat stuff. Absolutely. Surprise. Bonus bit of news. (gasps) What? Very small, very quick, tiny bit of news. It's not a tiny bit of news, but we're going to go over really quick. (laughs) Uh, Some time ago, some number of episodes ago, we talked in our news section about the potential evidence of human habitation in Southern California, over 100,000 years ago, way earlier than humans have ever been known to Mm -hmm, inhabit North mm -hmm. America. This was a conclusion that was based on evidence of breakage of the bones of mastodons that are attributed to human activity. Well, very recently, there was a response put out to this paper by Ferraro et al. in Nature arguing that they are wrong, that the patterns of breakage that they see can be explained by other processes, by normal geologic or other biologic processes. And it does not necessarily mean that it was humans, which is a big deal. And the reason that I wanted to bring it up is because one of our avid Facebook followers Mm -hmm. is on this paper. Yeah, Don Esker. And he posted on Facebook about it and he actually made this cool, description where he goes through the details of what exactly he and his colleagues did. So we will put that up on the blog post. You should check it out. It is a, an interesting comment on mm-hmm. that original study. And of course, the people who did the original study responded to this response and basically said, nope, we're sticking to it because we think our evidence is strong. So there's lots more discussion going on as we speak.
1: And this, people, is what scientific discussion actually looks like yeah back and forth when the news talks about a scientific debate usually (laughs) not heated and this is usually it's someone going actually i i think we could you pointed out these things i think it could be explained this way and the other person going well no we tried (laughs) we're pretty sure we tried to take that into consideration by doing that and other people eventually joining in and other discoveries being made so this is cool Science in action.
0: Yes, so lots of all this news will be up on the blog post as usual. And with that, on to fish. I had, guess more fish.
1: We had twenty-five percent extra news there. We did. It was ridiculous How about that.
0: Don't expect that just every day. We're,
1: we're going to go over budget. Um, we, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, man the the overhead. <laughs> other business words. It's writers people. They're uh. going to be upset at us over at the business factory. <laughs>
1: this, they make all the business. Yeah. <laughs> so today, we are here to talk about placoderms. And yeah. this is a very cool group. Now, to give you the quick introduction to what a placoderm is, these are ancient armored fish. Mm-hmm. These, these are going back to you know some of the the earliest fish and right before the age of fish, in fact. Placoderms are a group that typically have armor covering their head and thorax, the, basically the what we would call the, the abdomen or, the, or not the abdomen, but the uh, the chest area. Some had very thick plates. Some had just very thick scales that formed plates. But they typically were very armored. They had jaws, so these were some of the first jawed animals we see, which we'll get into more as we talk mm-hmm. about that significance. But they, for the most part, lacked teeth. They had typically the armor made up their chewing features. Basically, the armor would have edges yes. or rough patches that would let them slice or grind or chew or crunch.
0: Yeah, it makes me. It always makes me think of Alphonse Elric. Yes. Yeah. In Full Metal Alchemist, yep. you have the the suit of armor, and it doesn't have teeth, but the armor forms into yeah. points. Yeah. Overlaps. Over, over the mouth.
1: And and some of them had self-sharpening teeth, which we'll also get into as we get on further. But they had crazy stuff. <laughs> they had fairly simple jaws. yeah. You know, so this was not quite the same as our jaws today, but we do see some more complexity in certain groups. Mostly predators. Not all, but mostly mm-hmm. seem to be predatory. Uh, ranged in a, a large amount of size. We had very, very small scavenging or bottom-dwelling to very large Active predators, so it was a very um a wide, diverse group with many body forms. So it's it's hard to just say, well, they look like this. The one consistent yes. thing they had was that armor and the the teeth and the jaws or the lack of teeth. Typically, we find them in placodermia, which is actually a paraphyletic group. Now, what does that mean? Your vocab word for the day, kids. Paraphylae <laughs> Paraphyletic. <laughs> Paraphyle. So paraphyletic means a group that includes an ancestral taxa and all its descendants minus a few Yes Usually not many A great example would be when the term reptiles is used mm-hmm. This does not actually refer to all of reptilia, which would
0: include birds Yeah, we use it to mean lizard snakes, crocs, turtles But cladistically Yes Birds are evolved within
1: that group. If you were to so, take the family tree strictly, you should be talking about
0: birds every time you talk about reptiles. So, when we talk about paraphily, we're talking about word use. Yes. Right? When we use the word reptilia. And the reason that that happens with things like placoderms is because oftentimes a group will get a name back when we thought. Yeah. That it was right. We, it was thought at one point that placoderms were a separate group yeah. of fish. These fish all obviously have a feature. Yes, this was one group of fish, and then as we kept studying them, we realized, hmm, this is several groups of fish, mm-hmm. and one of the groups of these fish are all the other fish that already have group names. Yes, and that's the birds, that's what happened there was... We had reptiles,
1: and then as we studied dinosaurs more and more and more, we went, birds are actually dinosaurs. Huh.
0: Yes, so they fit within reptiles, but it would be weird now if we started... <laughs> yep, if zoos now required people to put their birds in the reptile house.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's So it's it's a thing where it, it is... This still refers to the feature that described this group way back when, but now we have to acknowledge that technically... It would include others
0: that don't really apply to this description or don't apply to the discussion. So, yes, which is what makes this group so interesting to try to cram into an oh, episode yeah. that it is actually several groups, yes, <laughs> many, many, many fish. groups.
1: And the the main groups that it is excluding are the the, the important ones that really stand out is the bony and cartilaginous fish, the osteichthyes and the chondrichthyes. Yes. Which are your modern your lobe finned ray finned fish and your sharks and rays and skates technically would fall within the branches of placoderms,
0: but don't call them We don't call, them placoderms, we don't call so. them placoderms. So So they evolved within this which which makes placoderms really oh, interesting. Re-
1: and we're gonna we're gonna go over all this because placoderms have crazy implications for the the evolution of most vertebrate life. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah this this was one of the early explosions of vertebrate life that that explosion also included all all pretty much all the other vertebrate yeah. life and that we know today. The this happened quite a while ago as you would expect
1: placoderms show up in the early silurian about 430 million years ago and die mm-hmm. out late devonian about 360 million years ago. So not a crazy length of time compared to other groups yeah but they they as the the you know the candle that burns brightest they went big and then disappeared
0: yeah they dominated ocean ecosystems for during the you mentioned before the Devonian the Age of Fishes And
1: and it's named for them and the other you know groups of fish that many of which continue to today greatly diversified during the Devonian the earliest ones we actually find in China but they are a global group. You find I them think. all around. And the fossils of placoderms during the Silurian are actually very fragmentary. Not just in the record, but in the
0: fossils. They're actually usually fragments of the armor. Interesting. Well, because the armor is not it's plates. Yeah, it's not contiguous. It's not one big shell. Yeah, so they they preserve really well in a lot of cases, but they don't necessarily stay together yeah. when the squishy fish is dissolving away underneath it. And, that's what it sounds like. Yep, yeah, that's the, we've recorded uh, <laughs> <laughs> we had a fish right it's, decomposition it's, it's
1: a fully artist <laughs> I will add that in post yes <laughs> um, anyways the Silurian fossils are they're not extremely well documented because m- most times you don't have the full fossils so many of them are recognizable as pachyderms but not mm-hmm. actually able to be placed within a specific group within placodermia which happens a number of times with placoderms where it's like we can tell it's a placoderm for sure Mm -hmm. it's weird enough or we don't have enough to really tell you who it's with so it just kind of is like placoderm you know family from and then genus (laughs) species
0: of placoderms does it belong Mm -hmm. to
1: yeah so there's a number of times this happens with them and once again we're getting this is very old fossils and that's not uncommon with old things that the resolution gets worse,
0: and especially when you're in the early evolution of a group. Yes, when the different groups within it have not necessarily differentiated yes. quite as strongly.
1: Now, some people would point out that the, this fragmentary might not just be not might not be due to a rarity of the animals during that time, but might be due to preservation bias. They may have been living in areas that were not preserving them well, and oh, interesting. when they diversified in the Devonian, they started filling all sorts of ecosystems and environments and were able to fossilize much more regularly and the reason they suggest this is because we see such a sudden surge in their diversity that it would make sense that they were already well established if just not in the right places and so yeah, that yeah
0: so they finally started moving to places yeah. where they were being preserved
1: and that there was already a a you know foundation for them to diversify from cool yeah uh, the extinction at the end of Devonian is very sudden, and the cause is not
0: really well decided or known. Yeah, that's one of the big five. Yeah, and absolutely. And Devonian extinction. Th- there
1: was some major extinction events here. One of them that they sometimes point to is the, the Hagenburg event, mm-hmm. which was a, a anoxic event where the anoxic uh, levels rose in the environment and they seized and yeah, this is just marked... to
0: say that oxygen levels drop.
1: Yep. And this is marked by a black shale that was fossilized, and may have been due to sea level fall caused by glaciation increase. So as interesting more yeah, things yeah. froze, it pulled water, which reduced oxygen, which killed a lot of stuff.
0: Yeah, lots of fish. Mm-hmm. Right? The Devonian was the age of fishes, and the, you saw diversification in the sharks, and Mm -hmm. the bony fish, and weird things like the quote spiny sharks, Oh yeah, and tetrapods show up at that time, the first fish to move up onto land, like Tiktaalik. But then at the end of it, you lose a ton of that diversity, including, sadly, all of our Armored Placoderm friends. Speaking a little bit about the environments that they were living in, that is,
1: as David was just saying, the seas were rich during these times. Oh, and yeah. there was a ton going on there. Much, the seas are still rich today, but this was a, a notable time in the fossil history that stands out for the diversity of many groups. Fishes that we recognize today, the the cartilaginous fish, the ray fin, the lobe finned, which would give rise to tetrapods and stuff. Jawless fish mm-hmm. were also, of course, around uh, with the placoderms. So they had plenty of neighbors in competition. In the Silurian, it was fairly warm time, and we see sea levels rise and then fall a little bit but warm shallow seas covered much of the planet at that time and were uh, very widespread which is great for diversification oh yeah sun being able to penetrate the water allows for lots of plant growth which allows for lots of life yeah also. so that's very important uh, we see lots of r- recognizable thing, the eurypterids which are your Groups that the group that the includes the sea scorpions. sea scorpions, these were big during that time. Trilobites were big, things mm-hmm. like cryonoids and bryozoa, lots of mollusks around during this time. But one of the things I found interesting is reefs were not quite big yet. Reefs yes were pretty sparse during the Silurian, so it wasn't you wouldn't have quite recognized the ocean the same way. You know, cryonoids and bryozoa were probably going to be much more common than coral reefs. That yes. we're so used to seeing
0: the the tropical oceans today. And the corals you had back then were not today's groups of corals. No. It's, you saw rugos, right? The horn corals were very common. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and the other one, tabulate corals, yeah. were very common. Different from what we have today.
1: And so you see a lot of that? Unfortunately, we see the rise of leeches during the Silurian. <laughs> 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 I saw that one note. <laughs> I saw that one note when I was going through. I was like, "Oh, that's the one animal, the one animal people <laughs> that gives me the heebie-jeebies." Everything else, I, I still appreciate them. They're fascinating, but oh, just the idea of a, a annelid that feeds on people it's, no, it's wrong. If they have eyes and teeth, and they hunt you. Nope, sure uh, do. It's wrong, but we see this. In, we also see some terrestrial action. Just quick aside, since. You mentioned the tetrapods. We see the first large land plant fossils during this time. We start to see yeah. some terrestrial animals, millipedes, predatory arachnids. Not a lot, but some things going on on land. Yeah, in the Silurian. Mm-hmm. Devonian is where things kick into high gear for this group and a lot of other things. Warm and arid across much of the planet. You know, Once again, I'm this very generalized you know, capping, but we mm-hmm. see new forests that are drawing CO2 and may have helped cooling during the later Devonian, so it was generally warm and arid. Sea levels were fairly high. Corals became more abundant. Many of the groups we already mentioned continued and became much more diverse, but we do see some diminish. And Trilobites yeah. do not see their heyday during this time, but the fish do. Oh, yeah. And they go crazy. They get tons. Age of fishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is also when arthropods really start to take the land. Yes. And so... Cool things happening in the sea, cool things happening on land. Placoderms during all of this were really some of the first mega predators. So they yeah. they stand out for they really take charge. And some have even suggested that their extinction may have been what gave the opening for the other fishes to continue on and become as successful as they now are.
0: Yeah, well you had that the the big placoderms and Big early sharks mm-hmm. and early bony fish and spiny sharks all occupying the same ocean and yeah. losing a couple of those big groups would certainly shift around the dynamics. So the ocean setup, the structure of ocean, <laughs> ocean huah, <the> structure <laughs> of ocean ecosystems would have been uh, notably different in, in, in yes. a lot of ways from what we see today.
1: As for where the Pachyderms were living, once again, they're global. But they also are fresh mm-hmm. and saltwater. So they were basically cool. anywhere it was wet, they were there. These are some of the first vertebrates we see to colonize freshwater. So they're pioneers in that sense. They're also some of the first we see to colonize the open oceans to really, you know, move off the bottom and really start to be be active, active swimmers that are yeah, you know, yeah. hunting that way. So they they were very much pioneers in a lot of ways, but also just behaviorally, they were doing things we weren't seeing a lot of
0: things do at that time. It's interesting to think of, because I've heard that, at least for a while, the thought was that many placoderms were bottom-dwelling. Yes. And we know that, that many of them were. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you know having armor and being covered in armor is a great feature if you're bottom-dwelling yeah, and you're, you're just sort of crawling you're around. You're a fish and, turtle. Yeah, you're, exactly. Your you're trilobites are the same yeah, way. Yeah. They're armored things on the bottom. And then to imagine some of these fish moving up into more swimming, predatory, yeah. active lifestyles, but keeping the armor. Yes, yes. So now you have armored predatory fish swimming around, which is a pretty cool mm-hmm. find. And so
1: we see a crazy amount of diversity here. I'm going to go over some of the cool examples of these fish at the end, but I would like to talk a little bit more of them as a group, because mm-hmm. evolutionarily speaking... Placoderms did some crazy firsts among yeah
0: they they like you I like you said pioneers yes is a good word for them
1: they as far as vertebrates go so things with a backbone and are are mm-hmm. you know dissonances they did some major things that we still see the effects of to, in modern groups
0: yeah so remember dear listeners that the first animals with bones were fish yes. Right. Jawless fish, which gave rise to jawed fish, and then jawed fish gave rise to everything else with bones yep. that we have today. All the other fish, and then us, us land dwellers. Absolutely. So
1: these were significant among those for a number of reasons. The big one is they were the earliest branch of the gnathostomes. Yes. Which are jawed vertebrates. Yes. So these are the things with. Mouths that can open and clothes. These are some of the first animals that could chomp stuff. That could bite. <laughs> and boy, did they bite, which, oof. Yeah. <laughs> but originally, it was thought, or logically, it seemed that the earliest jawed fish were likely along the, the you know, shark route, that they were cartilaginous, mm-hmm. that then became calcified, that became, you know, bone- because that's that's very common in our bodies you know when we're babies much of our skeleton is cartilage and then it calcifies so it made sense that calc- you know cartilage would have formed first and then it became a true bony jaw right but with certain findings it's shown that placoderms predate and have true jaw features before the the earliest sharks show up so yeah it looks like they were what gave rise to our jaw. Now, traditionally, most of them, for the, the, the vast majority of placoderms, they had simple, simplified jaws made out of one bone. While yes. our, ours is typically made out of a few, and theirs was just this very, very simple, you know, lever system with a, a single bone. Mm-hmm. But then we find—if this ends up in a blooper—if this ends up in the episode, I love this group of man. Their names are a nightmare.
0: I'm uh, ready for it. <laughs>
1: I'm ready. Intellognathus primordialis. That was great. Which means Intellognathus, com- which means incomplete complete jaw. Yeah. And primordialis means primordial, so it's complete jaw, primordial. It's the first complete jaw. Yes. And this is old, 419 million years ago in China. Which once again, we're getting older than the earliest sharks and bony fish, so they definitely <laughs> had it first. Small. It's only about eight inches long, so not a big one. It resembles other placoderms in the, mo- the most prominent group, the Arthrodires, which we'll go into more detail, but Arthrodires are by far the most numerous placoderm groups, so a lot mm-hmm. of what we'll be talking about fall within that group, and we could have done an episode on Arthrodires, because oh, easy. it's huge, but we'll mention a few others so you get an idea. The order is still currently undetermined because of uh, its age and the features, but its jaw has derminal marginal jaw bones, which what that means is this is not bone that calcified from cartilage, but bone that formed from the dermis, from the the skin internal membranes.
0: Yeah, so it's extra features on the jaw. Mm -hmm. It's a more complex jaw structure. Yes, and it has premaxilla, which
1: is the front of our upper jaw, the maxilla, which is the Mm -hmm. main part of the upper jaw, and then the dentary, the bottom jaw. The bottom jaws. Yeah. So it had
0: the main bones of the tetrapod jaw. So we're seeing the early blueprint in action of the jaw structure that almost everything with jaws inherited.
1: Exactly. So they they were the first one that gave us the mouths we use today. And it upset the idea that, you know, sharks, which we typically attribute with being the famous jawed animals. Yes. Ancient jaws this upsets that idea. And so they they there's a number of times this happens with placoderms where the classic idea was, well, this group is, is the most likely to be where this feature arose and the placoderms come in and go, hello. <laughs> <laughs> nope. nope. They're like the Simpsons of fish. Yes. Yes. Placoderms, placoderms did it. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the other things they did on the note of the jaws, I mentioned that most of them lack teeth. Most of them. Yes. There's a few that have been found with very simple but with teeth early signs of you know more complex teeth to come yeah and so most placoderms have the armor that they use for their chewing but some of these have been found with teeth not in the bone but on the bone so these were teeth that were just kind of growing on the surface of the bone no root, no real complex structures and a lot of them it shows probably for some of them wore off as they got older so
0: Interesting. We're not life very, long. Very, very early. Uh, the 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 tooth alpha test. Yeah, because
1: they didn't have, since they didn't have the roots. It doesn't seem like they had a system for replacing it when they wore through it or broke it off, like sharks do with their poorly rooted teeth. But they have the backups. Yeah, yeah. The main ones that show this. There's two that show different evidences. The more primitive version is Romandina stellina. S T E L L I N A. Stelina. 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 Romandina stelina is a old, 400 million year olds. This is a group of placardombs we're not going to go into. It's the, the Encanthothrixa. Very chimera-like. Uh, chimeras are cousins of sharks today that have very bony heads. Not armored, but very bony heads and a tapered tail. And I explain this because there's a couple of groups that get this description as Chimera-like. And they yeah. have prominent pectoral fins that they flap like a like a, a little butterfly and, and push themselves through. They don't use their tail much. They're also called uh, ratfish. Yeah, some, ghost sharks. Ghost
0: sharks. This one had large spines on its chest that sets it apart from the chimera. So superficial look. So these were there were a handful of placoderms that were doing similar things to what we see in chimeras yeah. today.
1: And some of them have really weird body shapes, but some of them are very recognizable. Just convergent evolution, not any mm-hmm. relation. These show tooth plates on the jaw jawbones okay. that are, have dentine and enamel, which dentine is the structure of a tooth and enamel is the hard coating of a tooth. Yep. Show those structures, but the interesting part is they didn't develop all at once. It seems that they had like a founder tooth that then other teeth would grow on or off of interesting yeah so they would grow the teeth in stages or in, in patches interesting and very rough probably using it to grind or crush stuff yeah like a stingray yeah like a stingray very simple toothy plate but teeth which once again before anyone else did it yeah so we see the first true teeth in this group or it you know definitely evidence for the origin of teeth yeah among the among the earliest mm-hmm. the other one uh, that shows this, which has more complex teeth, uh, and they, they found it in a really cool way, which I wanted to mention, because it's a neat technique, is compagopasis crouturei. We'll edit that in. No one will ever know how it happened. No
0: is. <laughs> we pronounced that one first yeah. try.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this one uh, was another basal placoderm, and there's very few specimens, so they initially were not able to look at it in the detail they would need to to see whether it had teeth, on the inside of the fossil because they did not want to destroy them. Yeah. They found a technique, and I want to talk about this just because this once again sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie, <laughs> where they are able to do high-resolution CT, you basically 3D internal images mm-hmm. by speeding up charged particles through a magnetic field, which resulted in high energy light being emitted that could penetrate opaque solid materials. And produce the image. Cool. Yeah, they're basically just shooting stuff through a magnet. That's then shooting light at the thing. It's, I just love <laughs> it. It's it's synchrotron topography. Yeah, that's used. That's now super common. Yes, it's a really synchrotron it's studies. Basic high high detailed. You know, effectively CT scanning. Same yep. concept is what it yields. The teeth had dentine, and they also had a pulp cavity, which is what produces dentine. Mm-hmm. So fairly complex structures, and it grew on the surface of the jawbone, no roots, like I mentioned. And these are the ones that really seem to not have had ability to replace. So they were probably either only present in juveniles or like some animals today, once they wore off, may have determined the end of the animal's life, or maybe they were just a tool for the young to help them process food. But like an egg tooth for a bird to crack their egg, once they're an adult, they no longer need it.
0: Early tries. So
1: interesting stuff. They're not 100% sure on the exact behavior of these teeth, but they are definitely teeth. Yeah. So this is a super important group for the origins of teeth and jaws. Absolutely. And they don't stop there. (laughs) But wait. What else do they do? Not only do they focus on the mouth and the head and all that stuff, they also focus on the other end and hind limbs. Yeah. They are some of the first ones we see to have hind limbs. And from what we can tell, the earliest group that developed these. With hind appendages. Yeah. Front limbs yeah. and hind limbs, pectoral fins and pelvic fins. Yeah. Previously, it was believed all placoderms except the antiarchs, which is the second largest group, mm-hmm. had pelvic fins. Uh, and it was, the antiarchs are also... Mostly found to be the most primitive group. Interesting. So they they assumed that lack of pelvic fins were ancestral,
0: and then they developed pelvic fins, which right that the earliest ones had just the front flim, fins Absolutely. and a tail, and then just a long tail, which so they were like a sea lion. Yes, yeah. They finally yes. actually sea lions don't. It's not the tail; it's the back feet. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah. You can like a dolphin. Like a mermaid. Like a dolphin. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but a group re. Uh, reanalyzed one specimen. Uh, and I'm not even gonna try to say this one. It's got more syllables than the other two combined. <laughs> but it was one fossil arc number three one nine. Yes. But it it is these we'll put them up in the, the blog post with pictures and yes. the names and you guys can all send us your recordings of pronouncing them. <laughs> the this is a fossil specimen that was very well preserved and actually had a Preserved uh posterior, the back part of the body, which in placoderms does not always preserve because it's soft and the head is the armored part. So you usually yeah. get the armor, you don't always get the body. This one was so well preserved, and they were finally able to go in and see that it did have very small pelvic fins. Cool. Now, this is one specimen uh out of the 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 group that that showed this initially, but the fact that it has them and it is within the basal group can now give them the the evidence that all gnathostomes all jawed vertebrates did have four limbs pectoral and pelvic you know girdles mm-hmm. and that this is, separates them from the agnathans the jawless fish that lack pelvic fins so it is a consistent trait that once again seems to show up in placoderms first absolutely this is also interesting because it was initially thought that pelvic fins developed after Jaws. And now oh, cool. they can't say that for sure. It, it looks like they may have developed much more close together and can't be sure that Jaws came first. So once again, interesting.
0: upsetting the norms of society back then.
1: No, is, placoderms,
0: that's all they do. They are it's, the rebels. It's so interesting to go back through the evolution of the basic vertebrate body plan. Yeah, and I've left the best for last. Naturally. Because,
1: whew, placoderms also had crazy fish sex. (laughs) (laughs) They did! Because they were some of the first animals we see to have evidence for internal fertilization.
0: Yeah, they were pioneers of all... The the four F's of animal survival. <laughs> Fighting, feeding, fleeing, and reproduction. <laughs> yep. It's <laughs> Once again, a number of firsts. We see
1: the first evidence of internal fertilization and external
0: male mating structures. Yeah, so internal fertilization being, right, the, the, a lot of fish. You see this in a lot of fish today where one of them go, <laughs> shoots out the eggs and the other one <laughs> shoots out the sperm and they meet out of the body. Completely randomly.
1: It's just if they they, whatever mixes, those are the ones that fertilize, and then there you go. Some of them do it in controlled ways where they lay a nest and then the other the male, you know, basically crop dusts fertilizes that nest very specifically, but still it's happening
0: outside the body. Conception is happening outside. Yes. External fertilization humans, for example, are internal fertilizers. Yes. Kids. Yes. Fun fact. (laughs) So where placoderm babies come from
1: is through a armored storks. Yes, just so terrifying. Uh, <laughs> they had so claspers for anyone who is not familiar with shark anatomy are the mating structures on males. They have specialized mm-hmm. features uh, that are part of the back pelvic fins that are not genitals but a a, a transport structure. For the sperm, for the fertilization. So basically, it allows them
0: to in- enter the female and lock in during reproduction. Yeah, like an arm. Yeah. Like a little, like like a like a little like <laughs> imagining like the space arm. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. That just moves supplies yep. from place to yep. place. basically. It's just a little appendage that
1: transfers the sperm. Because it's not even a true tube; it's just a folded that makes a hollow section in the middle. So it's got a a it's rolled over. Yeah. Placoderms, we have seen a number of groups that have claspers, but theirs are weird because they're not made out of the pelvic fins. <laughs> they had a third pair of
0: limbs that formed <sighs> claspers. Cause Just why, for reproduction. Because why not? That's dedication.
1: Now, this is one of the weird areas where not only do they, so they show a first among tet- or amongst jawed vertebrates, nathostomes. Mm-hmm. Of internal fertilization but they are now doing it a different way so this is not a ancestral trait to shark claspers this is separate formation of claspers instead of making it from fins right right they have basically what seemed to be a fifth and sixth little limb on the tail a little appendage yeah that was used in the same way as a clasper and this sets them apart because it breaks the four
0: limb body plan but the... Indeed. But these, I, and it, you keep calling these limbs. And, and I think that typically when we refer to limbs, we're talking about, right, arms and legs, yes. bony structures. And
1: these, these, these were very similar to them. And they point out that the genes that control the, this number is something that can be mutated. And oh, yeah. is probably what gave rise to these. So they're not fully formed limbs, but they are more similar to a limb than they are to a fib interesting
0: they're like the panda's thumb
1: yeah yeah exactly but for
0: making babies yep so different different kind of thumb <laughs> that pause by the way listeners was me thinking really fast about how <laughs> what words i was about to use yep
1: yep <laughs> since you, our own sensors going nope 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 all right yep. <laughs> they they also talk about the fact that the claspers could rotate forward which may have meant that uh Placoderms effectively had, you know, what we would call today a missionary position, where it's it's front facing to front facing, you know, belly to belly. Because interesting. Because of the way the the their class seem to be uh, structured, this is also unique because it's one of the first signs of sexual dimorphism, where very cool male and female have different external features that you can see. This also leads us to the even cooler discovery about them. That this has a hand in is that placoderms are the first evidence of a live birth. That one blows me away. Whew, that's so cool, and the way it was found is even better. <laughs> <laughs> Do tell. So there have been a number of pla- this this finding of the claspers led us to wonder: Were you laying
0: eggs, or were you giving live birth? Right. If you're fertilizing internally, mm-hmm. then you're forming your eggs inside Absolutely. your body. Absolutely, and. The, your, and your fertilized eggs
1: inside. Sharks, we see both. They, some lay eggs, some give live birth, so mm-hmm. it's definitely a question to be asked because it's both are possible now. we, There were specimens found that actually had preserved embryos in the body, and some were basically ready to be born, and the reason that they know they weren't just in an egg is because one
0: of them was found with a, pre, a pre-mineralized egg, umbilical cord someday what we i like i feel like it's almost worth doing an episode someday where we just go through a list of ridiculous oh cases absolutely of fossilization. absolutely <laughs> a mineralized umbilical cord. it's
1: great so there's there's a few groups that that have shown evidence and and uh fossilization of pregnant females you know that would have given live birth Mm -hmm. Two of them are in a small group of placoderms known as the Tictodontids, which uh, we'll mainly cover here. We'll mention them a little bit later, but uh, this will be their main entry because they have two species that were found, both at the same formation. And actually all three of the live-bearing placoderms were at the same formation, which is a very well-preserved fossil locality for placoderms called the Gogo Formation. Mm Mm-hmm. In Australia. Yep, in Australia. This was a Late Devonian, so we're talking about 380 million years ago, yeah, toward the end of the Placoderm. Rain. So this is this is getting toward their their twilight. Most of these were not very big. the The one that you know they they have most reconstructions for that you'll see because it's by far the most famous for a couple of reasons. Uh, it was only about 11 inches long, and this is Matterpiscus Attenboroughi, which. Yeah. First try. As you may have noticed, is named after David Atbro. Yeah, not the not the guy that played John Hammond? No, no. Other Atbro. The right. other Atbro. Yeah. The one that works <laughs> with animals doesn't bring him back from fossilization. <laughs> this is... It's, it's known as the motherfish. That's what the name means. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's named very much for what it was discovered for. It kind of looks sharky, kind of chimeri. It's got crushing tooth plates. Not very big, as I mentioned. But... This has the preserved juvenile inside the abdomen, yeah. a fossilized umbilical cord, and evidence there's a little lump that might be the remnants of a yolk sac Ooh. that was found nearby. The reason that these are important is it means the mother was giving the young nutrition while
0: in there. It was getting nutrition
1: while growing.
0: Yeah. This was, This is, Yeah, I, I hesitate to use the word advanced, yeah. but a very familiar type yes. of pregnancy.
1: So it's recognizable to other live-bearing fish and animals. Yeah. And it's not the only one. There's another in this group that shows very similar. So that's three embryos, and, but same position mm-hmm. as Matterpiscus. The Arthrodires also have a member who shows this. One in the embryo was even shown to have very small claspers, so we know that congratulations, it was a boy. Cool. Which is neat.
0: That's cool. Uh, this one also. Boyant, baby boy. Yeah.
1: And that, that one also has confirmed claspers. Uh, these other two groups, Ostrotictodontus, or Tictodontus, there we go. Ostrotictodontus is the other uh, Tictodontid that showed live young at the site.
0: And Escisoscutum was the Arthrodire that had live birth. One of the most fascinating placoderm fossil discoveries while on the subject of re- reproduction and firsts is that. A pair of placoderms from 385 million years ago have the distinction of being the oldest fossils that show copulation. Yeah. Or rather, that this group is the oldest, and the, the you know, jawed fish which copulation shows up in the fossil record in action. Which is so this crazy. was a pair of a f- couple of antiarch placoderms, mm-hmm. Microbrachius is the genus name which is refers to the little limbs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because they are copulating side by side with their pectoral fins it looks like they would hold onto each other
1: <laughs>
0: with their front fins like little linked, link little link together little and in at least this case the male's clasper is inserted and they fossilize that that's Fascinating. So this species, the species is named after a fossil collector named Robert Dick. So this species is Microbrachius dicci. Aptly named. Pause for dramatic effect. Yep. So we actually, not only we have live birth, we have claspers, we have, like, they were fossilized in the act. Yeah. That's the, the odds of that. Fossilized in flagrante. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Yep. In flagrante delicto. Yep. the odds of something like that is crazy. That's that's ridiculous. So briefly, because the variety of placoderms is ridiculous, but there are, I wanted to go through some notable body plans, at least just to talk a little bit about how many different ways they can be shaped. And to start off, we'll talk about the antiarchs, which were the second most common. And often when you look up placoderms, after Dunkleosteus, <laughs> you'll see these. Yeah, they had very boxy little thoraxes and heads. They were very, you know, kind of kind of stoutly built, heavily armored. As David mentioned, they had these pectoral fins that were actually very long and armored and kind of hook-like. Yeah, and they at the early ones were very simple, very short, stubby ones, and they get long and even jointed as the Later groups show up in this grouping of placoderms. They also have a weird anatomy of their face. They have a little <laughs> a little hole on the top of their head that has their eyes and nostrils all in the same spot. And initially when they found this, it's called the orbital fenestra. Mm-hmm. The man who named it Edward Cope. Oh, I've heard of him. It's kind of a big deal. Uh <laughs> thought it was the mouth. And that then Oh interesting. The rectum was on the other side and that's how it, it got its name. Antiarca means opposite anus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I found a fish that's got its butt in the wrong place. Yep, it's this the placoderms have have <laughs> turned us into giggling kids because they're so there's so much crazy stuff with them
0: ah this podcast features adult language
1: (laughs) (laughs) instead uh instead of that the mouth is on the bottom and you know where the the rectum is as well they're both on the bottom which Mm -hmm. supports that this is very likely a bottom feeder it's looking up its mouth is down they think it may have actually been eating the mud you know swallowing mud and then digesting stuff out of it oh neat uh and they have some neat ideas we'll put up pictures of it, but they have one specimen that actually had its internal organs preserved through sediment. So we have a pretty good representation of what their internal anatomy looked like. Cool. Fresh and salt water, extremely successful over a hundred species in just one of the uh, genera of this group. So very, very notable. The Bathorylipus genus is probably the most notable one that you'll find when you look them up
0: yes very famous
1: you get a lot of other body plants like we said typically placoderms were known as bottom dwellers and many of them show that 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 design flattened mm-hmm. you know bottom facing mouth for bottom feeding some of them are very recognizable we mentioned uh, chimeras which there are some that seem similar to that but with more decorations almost more features that yes. you wouldn't see. Uh, some of them are very similar to rays. The the rhine fish, which is the rhinatids, are these very flat skate or ray-like placoderms. Uh, interesting because they had not fused armor, but unfused separate scales or tubercles, basically bumps that made their armor of the head and cool. kind of formed this that what they call a mosaic. And this is likely a basal trait. that sets them apart. So you get some Interesting. weird variety. Once again, there's crazy amount of diversity in here. One of the ones that's probably, I don't know, this one looks like it was would be like a villain, a little minion in a video game you would fight because <laughs> uh, of the weird shape to it. The petelechthids, these were, uh, once again, flattened. They had widened, you know, splayed, widened pectoral fins, but they had this lateral spine, this spine on their back that came off kind of like a, a shark's dorsal fin. But it was just oh, yeah. this spike. And so it was It was this kind of like little pyramid, this little triangle spiked fish with a long tail that came <laughs> off the back. And it looks bizarre. Uh, they think it's likely a ambush predator, but mm-hmm. they can't be sure because no specimen is found with preserved mouth parts. Oh, dang. So you get weird. Like, this is just a group with so many weird things, so many weird trends that go with some of them so there's yeah, lots yeah. of answers yet to be discovered. The Tictodontids, we're back to them really quick, because that means folded teeth, mm-hmm. mostly looked like chimeras. They had reduced armor and elongated bodies, so they were less placodermy like than you would typically expect, and they actually were questioned whether they were placoderms for a while, because of the, the missing armor that you would typically look for. They, they were likely seafloor, uh, either feet, you know on the bottom or near it. Which is, pretty you know, very chimera like in that face, and may have been feeding on things like shellfish with the, the teeth they have. Mm-hmm. But these are the this is once again the group that included the the two, prominent embryo bearing fossils that were found. So yeah, yeah, an an interesting group, and finally, and this this group we could have done the entire episode just focusing on them, and we wouldn't even run out. <laughs> the arthrodira. Yes, the big group. The jointed necks because they had a feature that the armor on the back of their head and the armor at their neck had a joint where they met up that would have allowed the top of the head to raise up. And so when they opened their mouth with the bottom jaw going down, the top of the head would have gone up and basically have given them a much wider gape. Yes. which is pretty cool. Oh yeah. And it comes in major handy when we talk about the most famous member here, this is the largest group, incredibly diverse. they, Mm -hmm. they, range in size from a 15 centimeters to you know, 20 feet or more. Yeah. They have flattened body plans. They have active swimming. They have bottom dwellers. They have predatory ones that would be going out to open water or at least up further in the water column. We call this benthic for bottom and pelagic for the ones swimming up in the water, you know, towards mm-hmm. the surface or the mid of the water. So they have, the, the, you know, two of the major ecosystems. They are dominating it as well. You get some that are uh, the flattened ones. There's a couple of weird ones that are similar to the other ones we talked about, but they have full armor and have a definite mouth. They actually have a very wide mouth for ambushing, the phylolepida. And these were freshwater and likely blind because they had very reduced orbits, eye holes, that were on the side of the head instead of pointing up, like you would expect most
0: bottom-dwelling predators to have their
1: eyes. Interesting. Yeah. So the, the,
0: the, the, the take home here, I think, is that placoderms, you know, they, they, they reigned for a bit and they're gone now, but my goodness. Oh, yeah. All sorts of different armor configurations and lifestyles and, and body shapes. This, this, this is a very, very diverse and successful group.
1: I, even in doing research for this episode, I barely dipped into the amount that there is to learn about them. Oh, yeah. It's... I, I the f- groups I focused on for this episode were the ones that seem to pop up the most often in research and articles discussing them. But there's literally dozens I could have gone into. Yeah, it's huge and diverse and crazy. The one though that we are here to give focus to today
0: mm-hmm. the famous Dunkleosteus. Yes, the the fish that inspired this episode. It's via Madhu's suggestion.
1: It is. A monster of a fish <laughs> this is a and it and it's made its fame well known. It shows up in multiple video games for yeah preachers i me and Dave were talking earlier because there's an an expansion this is, this is gonna ruin anyone's illusion of us, but of d and d we are nerds uh so I'm sorry to break <laughs> oh through. you're giving it away. i know it's I'm ruining the mystique, but there's an expansion <laughs> for pirate uh uh, a version of the game that showed up on Kickstarter, and one of the creatures they showed was a Dunkelosteus that
0: would be added oh, into the really? rules. So Interesting. Dunkelosteus is also an arc. Yes, Ark. For better or worse.
1: It's in there. It's This is when you want big, scary fish, and I want something different than a shark, uh, you go for Dunkelosteus. Yeah. This was late Demonian. So mm-hmm. at the end of the heyday for our group very very large they they tend to go up to 20 feet there have been some that seem to get even larger than that we once again mostly just have the head because that's where the armor is so the posterior of the body is vastly unknown though there are some specimens that give us clues which we'll mention they were named after david dunkel yeah who was the curator at the cleveland museum of natural history uh in 1956 during the time or when, when it was named
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: the Cleveland Museum holds some of the best specimens of Dunkleosteus because the fossil site that they come from is right nearby.
0: Yes, the Cleveland Shale is a very famous formation mm-hmm. for these. And, 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 and indeed, Dunkleosteus is officially or unofficially the mascot yeah. of the Cleveland Museum. And when SVP was in Cleveland in 2008, Dunkleosteus was the mascot of the meeting. Because why wouldn't it be? So this is, and if you, for a picture, and again, pictures on the blog post, oh, yeah. but what we were describing before of a fish whose head is covered in various plates of thick, bony armor, which comes down into fangs yep. from the top and bottom in front of its mouth, it's that the size of a great white shark.
1: Yep. They are extremely impressive. There are actually 10 species, and they there are hmm. some that seems to be smaller. So mm-hmm. Dunkleosteus is a genus, and most of the species are fairly large, but there's one that was seems to be at adult size at about just a meter, so just three or so feet long. Mm-hmm. A little bitty Dunkleosteus. Mm-hmm. The biggest and the uh, type species, so the one that described this group, is Dunkleosteus terrelli, which is also the largest known species and group of Dunkleosteus, getting to be six meters or usually roughly 20 feet long at max. The head was extremely prominent. It was um, um, 1.3 meters wide at the maximum width, so (laughs) four feet across. (laughs) Yes. Big animal, probably weighed a ton in weight Mm -hmm. at least, and would have not only been one of the largest placoderms of its time, but probably one of the top
0: predators in the ocean at that time. Oh yeah. And even since like the fish have gotten bigger than that, but rarely. So this
1: this is a this is a, a top contender, no matter how you look at it, for
0: size and a predatory fish. Yeah, one of the biggest predatory fish of all time.
1: Yes. It was also extremely armored. So this was a big predator with thick armor. Yes. Likely made it slow, but probably a very powerful swimmer. Yes, it was. Def- this was definitely not a fish made for sitting on the bottom. It was pelagic, swimming up in the water, probably in the open oceans, since we do find it in many areas, uh, or in many of the species are found across the world. So, this was not a a limited range predator. No, they're all over the place. The back of the body, as I mentioned, is a little bit of a mystery. Typically, when you see reconstructions, artistic drawings. Of it's based on smaller Arthur Dyers, smaller cousins, a very mm-hmm. similar Dunkleosteus like fish, where the the armored head seems very reminiscent. So you'll usually see it with that long tail and the fin running along the bottom, giving it a finned tail. But it's you know it's just kind of comes to a point. It doesn't have a recognizable fish tail or or shark tail necessarily. Yeah. But. One very well-preserved specimen actually shows something different and suggests that it may have had a asymmetrical tail, much like a shark's.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. This would have given it a heterocercal tail, which is what we call that asymmetrical where the top and bottom are not the same size. Yes. So that also provides more evidence that it was an active swimmer. This tail mm-hmm. is designed for speed, not the the if you look at the tails of sharks the heterocercal tail which most sharks have but there are some like the nurse shark that has that very long tail which is the fin kind of it bends upwards but the mostly the the fin is just on the bottom of the tail these are great for tight turns but not speed Mm -hmm. the heterocercal tail is the great white shark tail built for power and speed but not great turning and that if the Douglasius Dun- did have this tail, it was very likely an open-water predator able Though to put, vast, put yeah. some power behind it, yeah. The teeth are incredibly intimidating. They have these shearing, bladed teeth that actually... The sh- fangs. The fangs that came off of the armor. Right, because they're not teeth. This is true. This is true. They're not true teeth. It's the the blades of the jaw. It's the armor that comes
0: off the face. This was one of the... Placoderms that was not toothed, Mm -hmm. but made up for it with bladed armor protrusions. It's The
1: the way I kind of think is if you've ever seen some of the tortoise shells that have a spike on the underside, is where they've turned part (laughs) of what is armor into a, not really an attacking thing, they use it to joust with mail, but it's, they've turned it into almost a weapon. They've turned the edge of the armor into sharpened, bladed, tooth-like structures.
0: Yes, and they're self sharpening And
1: they sharpen against each other. It's like a pair of scissors, literally, that come together in a tight fit to sharpen each other. Not only were these blades in their mouth enough to go through other armor, but they also had an extremely strong bite. Yes. The feeding mechanism for them is very interesting. We have evidence for what they fed on because of scars in other armor of placard nerves that match the bladed mouth of a dunglossius. So yeah. they were going after other armored fish and probably were even cannibalistic at times because we see
0: armor of smaller Glossius that show these same marks. So <laughs> yes, which is that, that, that there was a presentation on that at SVP a couple years ago. Oh, right. Yeah. That I talked to Lee Hall, who is at the Cleveland Museum and also sent us a whole bunch of cool Placoderm resources Thank you for for that because I I have them Saved on my computer now and I will be going through them In (laughs) more detail even later And yeah we were talking about that because he was Part of a group that was looking at these Gouges Mm -hmm. that they found in Dunkleosteus armor and Basically saying well there was only one Thing that we know of around Then that matches These these gouges and Would have had the strength to do that in the first Place and that was other Dunkleosteus So either either predatory or perhaps, you know, some sort of territorial dispute or something. Yeah,
1: a a competition or a a defense or a number of things. Um, You know, you see that in alligators and crocodiles where they they actively attack one another for food or mating disputes or
0: territorial disputes and will maim each other, even if they don't kill each other. And what was interesting about that. One, no, that discussion that I had about that research was that they were seeing that the the bites, the bite marks were centered around the joints in the armor. Which, yeah, that's really interesting. So that they were going for the weak points in the back of the skull. Going for that, yeah, that weak
1: <laughs> skull point. <laughs> the feeding of Dougalostius is even more interesting than just having big scary mouth. They had as modeling you know, a computerized model reconstruction of the jaw shows that it very likely could open surprisingly fast. Hmm. The reason this is interesting is among fish, we see this feature in many predators in a behavior called suction feeding or uh, yeah. what we call gape and suck, where they open their mouth very quickly, cause a vacuum that lets the water rush in and pulls in the prey that's nearby the face. Yeah. Uh, probably the one that's most, that displays this really the clearest is like groupers. Goliath groupers and fish like mm-hmm. huge, and largemouth bass. But huge mouths that they're able to just unfold and open. And it just creates
0: this cavity. And literally they basically just hiccup the fish into their mouth. Yeah, they're not actually reaching out to catch it. It's just the water rushes in and pulls the food in with it. Lots of turtles use this as well. Mm-hmm. And the turtles are a a great comparison
1: because they can suck it in, but then they still have the beak because if they're not able to get the fish all the way in, on the clothes, they'll bite down on whatever it was they suck into them. Yeah, they're chomping. And the similar models show that the jaw had a heck of a bite. Oh, yeah. This, the model suggests an estimated for uh, one specimen. There's one I found that was for a... A larger specimen, or a potentially larger specimen, but the the range that it seems is in the the tip of the mouth. It was probably reaching four thousand four hundred newtons. Which when we when we get down to it, we're talking over definitely over a thousand psi. Mm-hmm. At the back of the mouth, we were seeing five thousand three hundred newtons, so a little bit higher than that. But when they were looking at the tips of those blades, they came down to these points.
0: Yes. And when you concentrate you the, the force.
1: Decrease surface area, you concentrate the force, and at the tip of those, it looks like they would provide eight thousand PSI, pounds <laughs> per square inch
0: of pressure onto whatever they were biting. And we'll 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 get those references and throw them in the blog post so people can see how you're calculating because it's similar to like T Rex. Absolutely. And to get that's exactly
1: this enough. is one of the strongest among the likely the strongest among fish, but definitely one of the highest invertebrates. And for a modern comparison, a great study by Erickson et al that did Mm -hmm. on croc bite forces. It's one of my favorite publications in general just because they have this great table that just goes through every species and shows (laughs) their ranges of bite forces that they went and captured. And for the largest crocodile of the day, the saltwater, crocodilus perusus, they reached the highest one was 16,000 newtons with some change, Mm -hmm. but the mean was 8,900 newtons, which is about 3,700 PSI. So this is, for the general bite of Duncan it is within that, but for the tips of those teeth, it was exceeding that by a wide margin.
0: Yeah, which was probably important when you're swimming around in an ocean full of other armored fish. you need to crack some shells, you need that bite force. So much like the the Gators and crocs are using that bite force at times to crunch shell and bone. Mm-hmm. It's it's amazing. So and estimations like this are
1: uh definitely subject to critique because it's hard to be sure that you're taking everything into consideration and that you're you yeah. have the evidence. The you know the croc ones is great because we were able to go measure them. You know, but there's like a there's a sighting for great whites having a extremely high bite force but we've never been able to measure it accurately so it's one of those we, we may find that it's different or we may find that it's reliable and if that's reliable there'd be good evidence for this as well i think and on top of that the babies didn't shirk the bite force either because they show a very similar proportion to the jaws of adult which interesting typically you see more you know gray style more more slimmer
0: features mm-hmm. in a
1: baby's jaw when it comes to uh vertebrates but here they had robust jaws from birth, so they were likely already going out and
0: biting and hunting and feeding when they were small. Yeah, I actually at that same SVP, in that same realm of conversation, Mm -hmm. when I was talking to Lee, I talked to Michael Ryan uh, among others, who were studying how the jaws of Dunkleosteus changed over the lifespan of the fish. Oh, that's cool. Because when you look at you know, we've talked about this before, when you look at big predators, great whites do this, gators and crocs do this, the, their ecology changes. They're eating different things. Yes. And what at least their investigation had found, and I don't know if this has been continued since then, but they were finding changes that the jaws were appearing to become longer and sturdier, which they infer- interpreted as them becoming, as the fish got bigger, slower, but stronger. Yeah. So as they were growing, they were biting not as fast, but more powerfully, suggesting that they were possibly eating different things, and, it once again, in an ocean full of big armored fish, mm-hmm. a slow, powerful bite is probably going to be what you need to go for big armored fish. Yeah.
1: And that's very similar to
0: alligators and crocodiles, where when they're young, they're very snappy.
1: You know. mm-hmm. For their size, they still have a decent bite, but it's nothing ridiculous, and they're going after smaller stuff, and they get bigger. The bite force just skyrockets and they start taking on slower or larger prey that yeah. they're able
0: to go you know take down with that big jaw.
1: So yeah. Cool animal from a cool group.
0: Yes, Dunkelosteus. There, there there's a little bit of insight into a famous Dunkelosteus is often called, because this is how in popular culture we refer to things, the T Rex of the Sea. Never would have guessed. Uh which is Goofy and silly, although it's a bit apt, but it has also made Dunkelosteus uh, experience a shade of the fame that dinosaurs like T Rex do. And so, like you said, it shows up in a lot of places mm-hmm. in pop culture, which isn't always a great thing. So, yeah. hopefully, here's just a little bit of awe inspiring facts and wonderful info about Dunkelosteus. Very cool, very cool fish. Absolutely. One, like, just. Final little note, whenever you see their fossils, you'll often notice
1: that they have the eyes because they actually did have a ring of bone around the eye, much like many birds have. Oh, the sclerotic have. ring? Yeah. Oh, cool. So that's why when you see the fossils, they look like they're looking back because we have everything but the squishy parts of the eye. <laughs> and so you, they, you can really see them. It's, I think that's also why they, they've you know, become famous. Not only are they big and cool, but their fossils are impressive looking, like... It is yeah, literally look, the animal's
0: face. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just the whole face is preserved in the shape of that armor,
1: and that's that's really cool. That's that's cap, that's much easier to capture the imagination when you can definitely know what it looked like coming at you. Yeah, and it looks impressive it's, and terrifying. It's very impressive. As I said, this is just scratching the surface. So if you ever like to hear more about this group or more specifics about some aspect of this cool ancient group of armored fish. Yes. Please let us know you can contact us in all the typical ways. Facebook, you can email us, you can contact us on Twitter and our WordPress, you can give us reviews on iTunes. You can Indeed. Also join us on Patreon, which we would always appreciate since many of our episodes now sit for a while now I mean are brought to you by listeners such as yourself. And so if you would like to contact us or join us in any of those ways, we'd be happy to hear from you and be happy to hear what you have suggested or any questions you have. Uh, and as usual, you'll be releasing episodes fortnightly. So in two weeks from this episode, look out for episode 30.
0: 30. It's very cool it's, stuff. It's, we're th- that's, that's It's crazy that we are already at 30. <laughs> and, as a big reminder, all the news plus pictures and links will be included in the blog post. This will be, a, am sure, a picture-heavy yeah, cool blog ones. post. There's a lot of good photos uh, that we can share with you.
1: As we sign out, thank you again to our listener that suggested this episode and sent us on this awesome journey. Mad Yes, thank you for your suggestion. Hope you enjoyed. If you need more Dunklosius, just let us know. Happy to provide. We'll, we'll dive right in. And with that, everyone, because <laughs> <laughs> they're fish. And we're,
0: oh yeah, because they live in the water. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Into the water. It's a layered joke. I think. It's, you have to really. You have to, yeah, no. It's, that's only for the attentive. Yeah. Listeners. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. We'll see you. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. For more from us, you can follow us on the Common Descent Podcast Twitter account, Facebook page, or on our WordPress blog, where we post additional cool stuff for each episode. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome. You can find this and other video game remix music at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time.